It's the 21st of June, 2018. This is the Room Now Week in Review. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, Executive Editor of RoomNow.com. This week we have some post-ULAR thoughts. We have a $30,000 price tag on a pet rock. And I have a solid answer to the age-old question, Doctor, could this all be due to stress? But first I want to say something to the kids in the room. Or in the car. Kids. Josh, Diane, Bianca, whatever your name is, you got to calm down. You got to be quiet. Mom needs to listen to this podcast. I know you'll have to listen to me, Dr. Jack Gush, da 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 da, every week, but this is kind of important to mom and dad. So get out your iPads, get out your Rubik's Cube, ask your mom what that is, and just calm down for about 12, 15 minutes and let them do this. They're going to do it every Saturday morning anyway. Now back to the podcast. As you know, we just got back from ULAR. It was a very interesting meeting. It was in a great town of Amsterdam. Uh, I would say a few things. Number one, if you didn't go and want to know something about the meeting, the easy way would be to go to podcasts at roomnow.com. Uh, we have ones from day one and two, three and four. Uh, you can look at it on or listen to it on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you get podcasts. It's an easy way to hear from a lot of good people on some interesting subjects. I think you'll find it interesting. Second, um, the bicycles in Amsterdam were unbelievable. I was warned ahead of time that it is one biking town. They're all over the place and pedestrians are at risk because they own the bike lanes and there's bike lanes everywhere. So yes, I had to look twice, three times before I crossed the road because they were zipping by in the dozens and in packs all morning, all night, all day. It was impressive stems back from the 70s and 80s when there were a lot of car accidents and deaths there was the high price of gasoline bikes took over and they've been dominant force in amsterdam it's part of the culture part of the what makes them interesting and unique um, but it, everybody was talking about the bikes uh, it's a wonderful thing it was a little bit of a dangerous thing but nonetheless they were all over the place a word to you lar you need more cities like Amsterdam. Amsterdam was fabulous. Everybody really enjoyed it. They enjoyed the meeting, but they really enjoyed the city. There was plenty to do. Tons of canals, great walk city, um, easy to get on and off. I was told to get on the hop on, hop off. I was looking for a bus. It wasn't the bus. It was actually the canal tours that you could go on and off all around the city. Pretty impressive. Um, as far as the meeting, I think that you'll find, um, uh, if you looked at the data, there was a lot of data on therapeutic weaning, which I still find interesting uh, that we're doing studies about the ability to wean uh, when the ACR has pretty clear guidelines that if you're in remission, don't change anything. Um, and uh, actually, if you're in low disease activity state, don't change anything. But if you're in remission, you could space out therapy or take off one of two drugs, preferably the DMARD as opposed to the biologic. You could go either way. But if you're going to do weaning studies, why not do studies that look at either x-ray outcomes or financial outcomes? Showing me that you can do it or not do it and flare or not flare is really not that helpful anymore. But yet we still see in the last two or three years, a lot of these studies, I don't know that they're adding to our, uh, our fund of knowledge on this. So this week's report, a meta-analysis on um, how to treat osteoarthritis. 
you know, you and I struggle in treating osteoarthritis, especially the inflammatory type, and there's a lot of disappointing data, a lot of disappointing experience on how to treat osteoarthritis and inflammatory osteoarthritis. This specific meta-analysis looked at the use of DMARD therapy or biologic therapy in people with osteoarthritis and showed, guess what? No, across the board, no better than placebo. So still, it's analgesics, it's lifestyle, it's contraptions, um, you know, Inflammatory osteoarthritis, my favorite regimen, tape up fingers that are bothering you, low-dose prednisone, 2.5, 2 milligrams a day, along with acetaminophen, 650, taking up to 3 grams, 4 grams a day even. Those people do very, very well, better than anything else. Uh, if you've got another idea, do a study and prove it. Anchor-associated vasculitis, a lot of the meeting about anchor-associated vasculitis, you might want to look at Lenny Calabrese's interesting report on that. He chaired the sessions on vasculitis, but specifically this cohort of 250 patients looked at the risk of serious infection, especially during the induction period. They found that a third of their patients have serious infections. That's gigantic. It's not surprising though, given that most patients at the induction phase get high dose steroids, and they're also on immunosuppressives like azathioprine, mycophenolate, maybe even cytoxin, etc. So one third get SIE, serious infectious events, hospitalizable infections, risk factors are age, smoking, creatinine being very high, greater than 5.7, CD4 T-cell counts less than 281, and being on IV cyclophosphamide. An interesting study looked at a cohort of JIA patients, 113 patients, and specifically looked at the ability to find occult IBD using a camera study. I thought it was interesting, I, and they did find a very small percentage, but it was 7 out of 100, about 6%, who did have occult, asymptomatic, but clear-cut IBD that was confirmed on colonoscopy. Uh, I like this sort of technology. It could be used in your spondylitis patients. Uh, it could be used in, in patients who are having bowel problems, um, maybe even related to IL-17 inhibition. But it's a nice tool that should be considered more. An interesting study comes from Singh in Cleveland, who looked at a very large claims data set on gout patients, elderly gout patients, who um, were followed over a long period of time and showed, not surprisingly, they're at higher risk for myocardial infarction. Their rate was twofold higher than patients in the claims data set who did not have gout. And again, this is something that we need to be uh, cognizant of. Gout needs to be treated aggressively. This is another one of those parameters where a, I think inflammation contributes to the risk of cardiovascular disease. Also, the hyperuricemia uh, and its contributions or its co-associations with the metabolic syndrome also adds this risk, both of which strongly call for an aggressive treat-to-target strategy in gout. Um, speaking of pet rocks, if I told you that the price of a pet rock, which cost you a buck two eighty back in the 70s, Look it up if you're born after the 70s. Now it costs $30,000. You'd be shocked, outraged, whatever. Well, guess what one of the most expensive drugs on the market right now is? Penicillamine. Specifically, the trade drug, Cupramine. The price on it is $31,000 a year or almost $300 a pill. Its indication, the rare, rare, rare disease, Wilson's disease, um, it's a 50-year-old plus drug. It's got tons of side effects. Um, again, I think the Congress needs to step up and do something about outrageous drug pricing. This is one such example. There's an interesting report that uh, just appeared in the OB literature about the use of non-steroidals. 
uh, and the risk of miscarriage. Uh, we certainly know nosteroidals can't be used uh, in the late stages of pregnancy because of what it'll do to the ductus arteriosus. Uh, we also know that um, many patients with arthritis, this is one of the most common drugs that will be maintained during the period in which the patient's trying to conceive. And throughout many of the uh, first few months, if not the entire pregnancy, up until week 32. But the question is whether or not prostaglandins um, and their inhibition may have something to do with what happens at implantation. This specific study looked at a very large cohort of women, over a thousand, who were um, uh, followed. Many of them uh, had exposure to drugs, and they divided the patients into three different groups. Those exposed to nonsteroidals, those who were exposed to acetaminophen, those who had exposure to neither. And specifically, they showed that um, being on a nonsteroidal gave you a 59% increased risk of miscarriage compared to those not exposed, and compared to those on acetaminophen, a 46 or 45% increased risk. The risk was, for, was greatest for early miscarriages, um, meaning less than eight weeks of gestational age, uh, and there there was a fourfold increased risk. Uh, the other people who were at, at risk here were women who had very low BMIs, uh, seemed to be also more at risk. So again, it sort of uh, speaks to some of the advice you might need to give your patients who are making uh, planful decisions about trying to get pregnant. Nonsteroidals may not be your mainstay drug in such a population. What about stress? You know, a number of years ago, I, I made up forms that you could use to screen patients with. And one such form you can find on Room Now, it's a screening form. I used to have on there, for both new patients and follow patients, I used to have on there a question, what is your stress level? And you know what, I took it off because everybody wrote high. Didn't matter whether you were a kindergarten teacher, whether you were someone who was retired and in a hammock all day long, whether you, you know, proofread for the news, it didn't matter. Everybody conceives, perceives themselves as being under incredible stress. And we always get that question, could this have been due to stress? How did this happen to me? You know, uh, yes, it's probably good to invoke stress, but everybody's got stress. Well, this very interesting study looked at um, 100,000 plus patients who have true stress-related disorders like PTSD, uh, and, and then compared them, these are diagnosed individuals, and followed them for like 10 years, and compared them to people who were not, did not have any exposure to stress, almost a million people, and compared them to about 100,000 siblings, siblings of those who were stressed, who themselves didn't claim to be stressed. The interesting data was that over 10 years, the risk of an autoimmune disease in someone with a stress disorder like PTSD was 9.1 per 1,000 patient years, but in the other two groups, sibling group and the non-stress group, it was only six per 10,000, per 1,000 patient years. So there's a two and a half to threefold increased risk of autoimmune disease when you're exposed to stress. Who's at higher risk? The younger patients, uh, and those are on SSRI for PTSD. Now, is this real or is this fishing for a p-value? I think it's real enough that I can now say yes, Stress is one of the factors, and yes, you should do all you can to control it. That's another study. Lastly, I'm gonna get into seronegative and seropositive RA. I was asked to write an editorial uh, on seronegative RA, and I've been mulling this one over for a long time. I think it's a big challenge. I think there's a lot that we don't know about seronegative RA. We certainly know that there's a subset 
of those people early on who'll go into remission. There's a subset of those people after many years who'll declare that they have some other disease like occult IBD or uh, uh, an occult spa, spondoarthritis. Um, but there is a lot of data that speaks to two seronegative disease. This one report I have looked at about 250 patients, 200 who are seropositive, 200 who are seronegative, uh, and then followed them to their, uh, on their response to non-steroidals and whatnot. At baseline, it turns out that seronegative patients tend to have more disease and more severe disease than do seropositives. Most people think quite the opposite. But it turns out that you need more, and it's more swollen joints, more tender joints, higher DASH-28 values. Um, and that's because you probably need more joints to achieve an ACR-ULAR definition of, of, of having the disease RA. Turns out that over time, that many of them will do very well. Some will actually go into remission. But when these people were followed on conventional DMR therapy, after a year, the seronegatives may have responded better, but by two years, there was no differences in response. So they are different at the outset. Their behavior may be different. I think there's a lot to be learned about seronegatives versus seropositives as we go forward. That's it for this week at RoomNow.com. Make sure you go to the website to find these links to learn more about what's hot in rheumatology. Uh, Note that next week, beginning Monday, I think you'll be seeing a new feature on our website and in our email called Therapeutic Update. These will be a matrix of videos around a specific topic. In this case, it's going to be around ULAR 2018 with a collection of what I think are my favorite and most popular videos from that meeting. Take a look at it. I think you'll like it. That's, we, that's it for this week. See you next. Bye.